Welcome to season two of Multilingual Montessori, a podcast where we discuss multilingualism, multiculturalism, and raising children from a Montessori perspective. I'm Gabrielle Kutkov, an AMI Montessori guide and TESOL instructor with a master's in child studies, and I'm the founder of the Multilingual Montessori website and Instagram account. On this podcast, I interview parents who are raising multilingual children, Montessori guides who have taught in bilingual classrooms or who are themselves multilingual, and adults who grew up speaking two or more languages. We discuss the intersection between language and identity, how to find balance when speaking two or more languages in a monolingual environment, and all the joys and challenges that we experience along the way. Today I'm speaking with Yuna Song, a language educator and assessment expert living in New Jersey. Yuna is the director of the Community Language Program, the TESOL Certificate Program, and the Language Program Management Certificate at Teachers College Columbia University, where she hires and trains language educators and language program professionals who aspire to teach and manage their own language programs. Yuna earned her MA in Second Language Studies from the University of Hawaii at Manoa with a focus on language assessment, measurement, and program evaluation, and she's expecting her doctorate in Applied Linguistics at Teachers College Columbia University in 2023. Having grown up bilingual in both the United States and Korea, and always having to code switch between two different cultures and languages, Yuna values the importance of intercultural communication skills, and she's a strong advocate for diversity and inclusion across global language teaching and learning contexts. In this conversation, we talk about Yuna's journey as an educator and higher education program administrator, as well as her own experiences growing up bilingual. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Yuna. Hi, Yuna. Welcome to the Multilingual Montessori podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad you're here. To start, I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Tell us who you are, where you live, and what you do. Yes, of course. So my name is Yuna Song, and I live in New Jersey but I work in the city. Um, I'm currently the uh, language program director at uh, the community language program at Teachers College, Columbia University. And I also oversee two different professional certificate programs. Um, One is for teaching, um, training English teachers, and another one is for training language program managers and administrators. Tell me a bit about your language experiences growing up and what role did language and multilingualism play in your life when you were young? Sure. Um, So I grew up with two languages. So I would say that I'm a bilingual rather than a multilingual. Um, I was born in Korea, but uh, one year after I was born, I moved, my family moved to the States because of my father's education. So until three, two, three years old, I think I um, mostly used Korean. I didn't speak that much, obviously, because I was only two or three. Um, But uh, by age three, when I started going to daycare, um, pretty much English became my primary language. So um, that's when I started losing my Korean. 
And um, Korean was spoken at home, so it was my home language. But other than that, um, English became my primary language. And I think by the age of five, I was not speaking Korean at all. So I was only understanding it, and I would just use English most of the time. So I grew up uh, bilingual in that sense. But then um, when I was 11, our family moved back to Korea because of my jobs and my dad's new job opportunity. And uh, everything sort of switched. So there was no Korean language support at the public schools in Korea. So I was just thrown into a public school system in Korea and I couldn't speak a word. <laughs> so I had to, it took me about two years to actually start speaking Korean. So it was almost Korean was like a foreign language to me at that point, or I would say a second language. Um, and that was a very traumatic experience. But one thing that was really special is um, I didn't stay out of touch from Korean when I was in um, the States. My, my dad sent me to weekend Korean schools. So I had to take Korean lessons every week. Um, I didn't really enjoy it. And I wasn't really, I didn't understand why I had to take Korean classes because I didn't really have anyone to um, speak Korean with other than my parents and my sisters. Um, but in the end, I think it really paid off. So when I went back to Korea, um, obviously, it was a lot smoother than learning Korean from scratch because I was used to the language. So I kind of grew up with both languages and I had to learn Korean all over again. But it, it was it's a very um, interesting experience um, I went through when I was in my teens. Yeah. So then what was your relationship to English like after you moved back to Korea? Yeah, that's another um, very interesting uh, phase I went through. So at first, obviously, I didn't like the fact that I spoke English. I didn't want to be different from uh, my peers. So I tried to, it was at first very hard to hide because I had a very distinct pronunciation when I was speaking Korean. But when that started to fade away and I was sounding a little bit more um, proficient and native-like, um, I was able to successfully hide <laughs> my English speaking identity. And that's what I wanted to do um, because it was my teenage years. But um, and but very interestingly, it quick I quickly forgot English again. So I'd not necessarily forget it, but I was able to only use Korean in my day-to-day -day life. Um, and I rarely spoke English. But then that changed again when I went to high school. So I went to a normal public high school in Korea, but I was invited to join an English newspaper club. So I started writing articles in English again. And that's when kind of the English reemerged and I started really using the language on a daily basis, but in a very different way, in a more academic way. And it was very exciting. So that's when I truly felt appreciative that I was speaking or I was able to express myself in two languages. And that's when I really valued having both languages. I think until that high school point, I was in this love and hate relationship with both languages. What language did you speak to your siblings in? So um, obviously when I was in the States, only English, and then in Korea, um, when I started, when I wanted to avoid speaking English, I only spoke Korean. But now I, I mix both languages when I speak with my siblings because they went through a very similar experience. So we identify as, uh, we sort of code switch all the time back and forth in both languages because especially when it comes to vocabulary, there's certain words that we would rather express in Korean. 
And did you do your undergrad in English or in Korean? I did. Uh, well, I did go to a Korean university, but it was sort of a bilingual university in the sense that um, because I was majoring in English and linguistics, um, I all of my classes were in English. I had to write my papers in English, do presentations in English. And I also minored in business uh, management and business administration. Yes. Um, and I those classes were also in English as well. So even though I was surrounded by Korean peers and friends and we were speaking Korean, all of my classes were in English. And did you feel when you started your uh, undergrad, did you feel like you had a good grasp on the English language or were there some like rocky moments? I think it was a little rockier than I expected because probably I haven't used academic English for a while. So I didn't have any problems just taking the courses or interacting in English. It was more of the academic genre or the rhetorics that I was not familiar with. So it took me a bit of effort and time to get used to that. But I would say because I've used English for so long, especially when it comes to reading and writing. So honestly, currently, I don't really read and write well in Korean. Um, because even though I uh, went to middle school, uh, junior high and high school in Korea, um, there weren't many opportunities for me to actually write in Korean or, or read. Um, so I, it wasn't that hard to, to uh, do my college studies in English because I was still much more comfortable reading and writing wise in English. And you, we talked a little bit about how you, what language you use to speak to your siblings, but tell me a little more about what bilingualism looks like now in your day-to-day -day life. Yes. Um, so uh, of course, because of my job and because my partner doesn't speak Korean. We we use English. Um, I use English primarily at home. Um, and uh, the only time I use speak Korean is when I speak to my parents on the phone and with my sisters occasionally when we mix Korean and English together. Um, but most of the times I'm, I'm uh, using English. Uh, I think one thing that I regularly do is watch Korean and English shows together at the same time. So I get a lot of exposure to Korean media and American media at the same time. And do you feel like you express yourself differently in each language that you speak? I like to ask my guests this question, and I know it's like a very big, deep question, but what are your thoughts? Absolutely. I, I, I agree. I do feel different. Um, I can't really scientifically explain why it feels different. But one thing I know for sure is that when I speak Korean, obviously, I'm much more used to speaking conversational Korean and casual Korean. I've never worked in a Korean environment where I had to use Korean for professional purposes or academic purposes. So obviously, I, I heard from a lot of my Korean friends that when I speak Korean, I do sound a little juvenile. <laughs> and um, uh, Korean has a lot of very formal word endings and you have to really control uh, politeness depending on who you're speaking to or what your relationship is with the uh, other person. And I'm not very good at controlling those markers. So I do make some silly mistakes uh, vocabulary wise or or uh, word ending wise. And so um, I am a lot more cautious and I'm less assertive. I feel like I'm less assertive when I'm speaking in Korean because I'm afraid 
I think, of making those mistakes and uh, making myself uh, look like a fool. Um, whereas in English, of course, because I work using English and also I've been in school, um, academic English all the time, I feel a lot more confident and comfortable when I'm speaking and using English. So after your undergrad, did you go directly into your master's? Um, no. So um, I, after I graduated, well, during my college years, I was tutoring um, kids uh, ages five to 10. Um, and I was teaching English, but I didn't really have a lot of training. After I graduated, I started working at a private English school um, it was a, a pre-K K, um, English kindergarten, I would say. Um, and I taught there for a year and a half, almost two years. Um, and that's when I really wanted to pursue um, a master's degree. Okay. And what led you to pursue your master's in second language studies? And why did you choose the University of Hawaii? That sounds, as somebody who's never been to Hawaii, that sounds like an amazing place to do a master's degree? Well, that's obviously one reason. <laughs> Hawaii is a wonderful place, a beautiful place to live. Um, the reason why I wanted to pursue a master's degree is because I was tutoring for some time and I was also teaching kids. And I think I gradually learned how to uh, manage a classroom, but I didn't really understand the student's developmental process. I didn't really know what was going on in their heads, what I could do to help them better or assist them better. And especially tutoring was a lot easier than um, teaching a classroom full of kids where their needs are different, their personalities are different. So that's when I thought, oh, I need, I need more training because what I studied was more linguistics and I was just studying languages and I studied many different kinds of languages, um, but I couldn't really uh, get the uh, teaching piece right. And so that's when I decided to pursue a master's degree in second language studies or applied linguistics. And the reason uh, University of Hawaii was my first choice is because I had a professor who got her PhD from University of Hawaii and she strongly recommended the program. It's well known for its language related research and also prestigious faculty. And so that's what really uh, prompted me to apply to the University of Hawaii. And was that your first experience as an adult living outside of Korea or had you already that, lived outside? That That's right. So uh, after I moved um, to Korea, I didn't really leave Korea for a while. So it, it, it had been 14, 13, 14 years. So that was my first time going back, uh, leaving Korea and going back to um, what I consider my my home country. My Yeah, so uh, although it wasn't New Jersey, I did uh, go back and I started uh, using English in uh, day to day. Yeah, what was that experience like? Can you remember the first few months? It was, um, I experienced culture shock, <laughs> to be honest. So the only thing I could do is uh, get by as a blend in as a native speaker who lived in the States uh, his or her whole life, just because the way I spoke English, I was able to get by. Um, however, the cultural gap um, was huge. Um, I haven't really been following uh, American media. I was not aware of uh, what people like, what was popular. So um, it 
uh, it, it was revealed very quickly. So once I started conversations with people, they would notice right away, like in a few minutes, that I wasn't living in Hawaii for a while or in the States for a while because of that cultural gap. I, I wasn't getting any cultural references. I couldn't follow them. So in that sense, I did experience some culture shock and it, um, I needed some time getting used to that. <laughs> And so after that program, is that when you moved to the New York area? Yes. So after the program, um, it was in 2008, I graduated. And then, and by that time, my sisters had moved to New Jersey from Korea. My sister was, uh, well, one of my sisters, she was, uh, she was living in New Jersey because she went to New York University and she graduated and she was working in the city. So she was already living in New Jersey at that point. So I just basically moved back to um, where I grew up and I wanted to live with my sisters again. And that's when I started my job search. Yeah, cool. So either in Hawaii or in New Jersey, did you find yourself um, seeking out other Koreans or Korean Americans to have that cultural or linguistic connection? Or were you kind of all in on English immersion and and getting up to date with like US pop culture? What was that balance like? <laughs> well, I, I would say in when I was at the University of Hawaii, yes, I did um, join the Korean Graduate Student Association. So I had a group of Korean friends or Korean American friends that I um, uh, and we would hang out all the time. Um, I think that changed once I felt comfortable again. Um, and especially when I moved back to New Jersey, I didn't really have a lot of friends around. Um, I made all of my friends basically in Hawaii and New Jersey, where I grew up, my hometown friends, I wasn't in touch with them. So I really didn't have any connections back in New Jersey. So um, my connections, uh, my connection with uh, Koreans or Korean American friends uh, was mostly through my sister who had a fair amount of uh, Korean American and Korean friends. So that's how I got to know some Koreans in New Jersey and New York area, and we would hang out together. But um, currently, I don't really have a lot of uh, uh, opportunities to to speak Korean. Yeah, that's how that's how I feel in New York as well. Um, I don't have a lot of opportunities to speak Italian, even though I know there are lots of Italians mm -hmm. living in New York. I don't have that. Um, it's just hard to find sometimes <laughs> to find those those groups. Yeah, those language opportunities. Even when I know people who speak Italian, we just kind of default to English sometimes, which is tricky. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. So tell me about some of your teaching experiences. You mentioned that you had been um, tutoring children and then you went into your master's program and either before, during, or after that, what were some of your early teaching experiences and what really excited you about teaching English language learners? Um, well, uh the very first time I ever taught was through tutoring sessions I had in my college years, but I, I was inexperienced and I don't really remember what I did. <laughs> um, so I consider my first true teaching experience um, uh, when I taught uh, a graduate uh, level, no, uh, in, in ESL course for undergraduate and graduate students at University of Hawaii. So um, I was a graduate teaching assistant and I was assigned to teach my own academic English class. 
Um, and that was sort of my practicum in a sense. So I got my training there and my supervisor would come in to observe me, video record me and give me feedback. Um, and that's when that's the point that I consider is my true first teaching experience. It was very difficult, traumatizing. I haven't taught adults before. Um, and then, um, and then when I got used to it after a couple of semesters, I wanted to go back to teaching kids again because that's kind of how I started my career in this field. So I got this great opportunity to teach at a um, English camp, um, an after-school camp um, in Hawaii. Um, and so when I was not taking classes or not teaching at the university, usually late in the afternoon and the evenings, I would go to this English camp and teach English classes there. And they were a group of Korean kids, children that would come over the summer to uh, for a few months to, to learn English and experience uh, the culture. What, what do I love about teaching English? Um, well, after that, um, and after I moved to New Jersey, um, I got my first uh, teaching job. I mean, not first, but a new teaching job at NYU. Um, and I was there for 13 years. And I taught pretty much all the levels there from beginner to advanced academic English, uh, general English and uh, business English. And I've developed tons of different uh, workshops for university students. So that's really where um, I developed or grew in uh, as a teacher. And what I love about teaching English and this job is, is the diversity, uh, just uh, meeting so many students from all over the world, all speaking different um, first languages, um, coming from different cultures, and the, the challenge and the excitement that I have to experience every semester trying to adapt my courses to meet the diverse students' needs and backgrounds. Um, I always joke to my colleagues that even though I see teach the same course 10 times, um, there's not a single time I would teach the exact same content. I constantly have to adapt depending on who my students are because I get a different group of students every time. So that's, that's what I love about teaching English and the fact that English is so instrumental and important for them to achieve their own personal professional goals and to be able to support and help them in that process is also very rewarding. Yeah. What are, what are some of the differences that you've experienced in your own experience teaching children versus teaching adults? I think it's the, how to keep the engagement level up. Um, so when teaching children, um, you do want to think about how to uh, make the experience enjoyable so that they could be engaged. So you think a lot about how you present the materials, how to keep their attention. Um, whereas adults, um, I think providing rationales is very important, what I'm teaching and how it's going to help them achieve their goals. You can motivate it, motivate them in a different way by explaining the rationales of what you're teaching. So mm. I found that the biggest difference, but I think whether uh, you're teaching adults or children, I think one thing still remains the same is that you always want to make it uh, worthwhile and fun. So I do still do fun activities with adults. And when it's fun, I think it intrinsically motivates your students. Yeah, definitely. So then what led you to pursue your doctorate in applied linguistics? 
Yes. Um, so uh, it was sort of an accident, I would have to say. So it goes back to when I was a student at the University of Hawaii. Um, I was teaching at this English camp and uh, the, the students were really interested in improving their pronunciation. Um, so I taught all of these pronunciation lessons and I simply wanted to know whether they were improving or not. So I devised, uh, I designed this short pronunciation test and I had them take the test, but then after they took the test and I got the results, I really didn't know what to do with it. Um, so I genuinely got interested in language testing in that way. So I took a language testing course um, and I wanted to figure out what I could do with the results and how I can find out whether my teaching was effective or not. Um, and, uh, and then I just fell in love with language assessment and I took other language assessment related courses and my thesis, my MA thesis ended up being on language assessment. So I was really into that field, but then I started teaching. So assessment was sort of off my plate for a while, but then I always wanted to pursue another degree to explore that area, language assessment area, because it's so important to know as a teacher um, whether what I'm teaching is actually effective and whether my students are learning. And the, the best way to find out is by constantly observing your students and then assessing them. So not just through a test, but just to know their learning process and the progress that they're making. Um, and that motivated me to apply for a doctoral program. And I think that was back in 2008. Uh, right when I started teaching, I think I applied. <laughs> um, and then I was admitted. And that was, was that at NYU or Columbia? I was admitted to both schools, um, but then eventually I chose to go to Teachers College, Columbia University. When did you, to just help me clarify the timeline, when did you finish that doctorate? Well, I'm currently still oh. there <laughs> in the program. So um, working full time, I've really been taking it slow. So actually I'm in my final stage now. I'm writing up the dissertation and hopefully I will be done this year. Awesome. Then you transitioned into a fully administrative role and now you're training teachers and you're not teaching anymore. And what has that transition been like? I know just for me personally, I'm not teaching full-time right now, but I still identify as a teacher. So <laughs> what has that mm -hmm. been like for you? I still identify as a teacher. Um, I'm teacher training. So now I'm the director. So my um, my primary role in my job is to um, manage the programs, the teacher training programs that I have. But also, I am still teaching one course. Um, uh, it's called Classroom Practices. So uh, it teaches different English teaching techniques and, and pedagogical tools and skills and all of that. And I love it. It's absolutely wonderful. Um, I miss teaching English language learners, obviously, um, but still I'm doing something very uh, related to that because I am teaching uh, teachers who are interested in teaching language learners. So um, in that way, I think I'm hoping to still be involved in this field. Um, I hope to one day teach English language learners again. Um, and that's why I still identify as uh, myself as a teacher, because I know that I'll be in the classroom again at one yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little more about your dissertation and what you've learned through that process? 
Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, I will try to make it simple. Um, I the the topic of my dissertation is basically I'm um, it's related to cognition. So I'm very interested in seeing how English language learners perform on language tests, specifically speaking tests, because the test that I developed is a speaking test. And um, I'm very interested in learning not only the type of language that they produce, but also their thinking processes involved in that test performance. So the, the topic was motivated by my experience at NYU um, when I was teaching academic English courses. I noticed that uh, I noticed two different profiles of students. So one type was students who had all of the linguistic resources. I mean, they had great vocabulary, grammar, all of that, but they weren't able to really synthesize information, which is a very critical academic thinking skill is to synthesize information and to be able to present it coherently, um, like in a classroom presentation, for instance, or in a classroom discussion. Um, and then I saw another group of students who really had higher cognitive and metacognitive thinking skills, but didn't necessarily have the linguistic resources. And I think in language assessment, we tend to focus a lot more on the language component, like what kind of words are they using or, or is their grammar correct? But uh, we don't really pay equal attention to how students synthesize or process information. And after all, a performance in speaking and writing, all of that is involving topic and content, right? So if thinking is an integral part of, of language ability. So I was, because of that, that's why I wanted to design a test that could assess both aspects, not only the language part, but also the cognitive aspect of language performance. So I devised a, a scenario-based assessment that kind of takes the test taker through a certain scenario um, and they sort of have to, um, they have to pretend that they are taking an online class and they have to do all these academic tasks within that class. And essentially that whole scenario is a test in itself. So I'm now looking at the results and I'm trying to figure out, first of all, whether the test works, but also I'm interested in finding out the relationship between cognitive performance as well as language performance. What advice do you have for teachers of children when working with bilingual or multilingual students? And what are some ways that teachers can support these students even in monolingual environments? I think it's really important for the teachers, and I'm sure a lot of teachers already do this, but I think it's really important that the teachers are ready to embrace all of the languages that are spoken at the school um, and that the children know or let the children or the uh, students feel that their language is valued. I don't think I had that experience when I was growing up here. Um, I didn't even uh, realize that I was speaking a different language at home um, <laughs> until someone pointed that out, that I was different. Um, and I didn't really get that supportive environment where I was I felt safe to say that I was a Korean speaker or I spoke Korean at home. So I think providing that kind of safe environment, I think is key. Um, maybe even learn a few words um, uh, in the language that your student speaks. Um, and 
if you have students that speak the same language or share the same culture, maybe even have them use the, the other language, their first language in the classroom. So to, to show them that it's, it's, it's wonderful to be able to speak multiple languages. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Um, and what advice do you have for parents who are trying to raise bilingual or multilingual children? Um, I think, well, first of all, I, I think everyone knows that bilingualism or multilingualism has great benefits, um, not only psychologically and practically, but also um, it, it's it's proven that it gives, uh, there's a lot of benefits to the brain as well in terms of working memory or executive functioning. Um, so know that it's wonderful to, to have, to be able to speak and use multiple languages. And um, just from my experience, I think what I really respect, uh, the, the reason why I respect and I'm, I'm grateful for my father is that he constantly reminded us that we need to speak the first language at home, um, that it's okay to speak multiple languages. And we even had this rule, we had a whiteboard, where every time we spoke English at home, we had to um, mark on the board. Um, and he would tally uh, all of the instances where we would speak English at home. And in that way, he encouraged us to to speak Korean or try to speak Korean at home. So encourage use of the uh, first language or other languages at home, try to create opportunities um, when I moved to Korea and I was suddenly surrounded by Korean speakers and I felt very lost, um, my mother brought me to an international school where I could do after school activities, at least in English, so that I could keep in touch with my English speaking friends. Um, and that was incredibly helpful. So just my parents um, encouraging me to use both languages at all times, regardless of where we lived, I think really helped me a lot. And I'm very, very thankful that although I'm, I was annoyed at that time having to take English class, I mean, Korean classes every week. Now I'm very thankful. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's such a great idea to, um, that she brought you to do an after-school program in English. So you could still have that contact with English and have mm -hmm. peers to speak English too. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, um, my, my parents, they didn't really know how to raise bilingual or multilingual children, I'm sure. Um, and I don't think that was their goal. Um, my, my parents, our family ended up there because my dad had to get his degree um, and his education. Um, but I think what really motivated my, my dad, especially uh, for him to force us in some ways to speak Korean at home and to maintain Korean um, is because he knew that we would need it. Um, and uh, there was this real purpose or goal. And he always dreamed about going back to Korea to, to you know, um, step up in his career. So knowing that he was futuristic, he, he, he knew that one day I will go back to Korea, my family will go back and my, my kids will need Korean. And so I think he was trying to create that environment. Obviously, we didn't have any Korean speakers around us. So he wanted to create that immerse, immersion or immersive environment, at least at home. Um, so he bought us a lot of Korean books and he recorded Korean shows for us to watch. Um, and we got incentives if we if we followed his rules. Um, <laughs> and and that I think that really helped a lot. So 
I don't know if there's a special technique or, or rule on how to raise bilingual children, but if there, uh, if you give your kids an opportunity to just use the language for a real reason, like maybe traveling to a certain country um, where that language is spoken, then I think it will motivate your kids to learn more. Yeah, definitely. When when it comes alive for them, I think. Right. When it's relevant. I think the relevance piece is so important. Um, and when I, I went through a huge identity crisis when I was six or seven, because, and I don't know if you want to uh, use this, but uh, I honestly didn't even re- recognize or realize I was uh, not Caucasian. So I lived in a dominantly Caucasian neighborhood. I was the only Korean speaker in the entire school. So when I saw another Asian student, I was so excited that he looked like me. But I didn't, even till that point, I didn't even realize that I was Asian or I looked differently appearance-wise. And so when someone pointed that out at school, it was a huge um, uh, incident for me. So I was very traumatized and I didn't know what to do. And that's when I went back to my dad and said, what am I? Why do I look different? And why are people making fun of me? And that's, and that's when I knew that I was Korean. <laughs> Actually, my, my parents were Korean. So that's how distant I was um, from my first language and my identity. But when I realized that we did, we had show and tell and all of that. And I started reading up on Korea, reading encyclopedias, and I brought in um, stuff related to Korean culture, and I showed it to my classmates. And, um, and it became more relevant, you know, in my because I started identifying as a Korean American rather than just American, I guess. And that's when Korean learning Korean became a lot more interesting and um, motivating. Yeah. So what was your experience like going to Korean school on the weekends? Did you have friends in Korean school? Yes. So I, I did go, I went to church. So this was a school, a language school, part of a church, and it was a Korean American church. So, um, but I, even there, I didn't really speak Korean because all of the kids were the same as me. We were all speaking English. Only the parents spoke Korean to each other. So our Bible study or our sermons, they were all in English. Um, but then there was this one or two hour session at the end of church day where we had to attend the Korean classes. And so it was, uh, it was all my peers, my, my classmates were sort of in the same situation. Okay. So you mostly socially spoke English with them, but then the classes. Absolutely. Were yes. Yes. It was, it was taught in English. We learned the Korean alphabet, some basic words. Um, I never really got to that uh, point where I could converse in Korean, but uh, we learn uh, the foundations. Language languages are endlessly fascinating to me. So mm-hmm. I love I love hearing about different people's experiences and and how they got where they are. And it's always changing, right? Like your mm-hmm. language is never static. I think that's also why it's so fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. now I have to learn Portuguese because my partner is Portuguese. Oh, uh, I mean, cool. my partner is Brazilian, so he speaks Portuguese. Yeah. So um, to to talk to his family, I need to learn Portuguese as well. So how uh, has that been going? Not not going well. I mean, <laughs> um, I'm, I've been lazy about it. Um, I think I'm a little bit too occupied with my dissertation trying to finish up. But 
that's the first thing I want to do as soon as I graduate is to take Portuguese classes seriously. Um, I'm just doing it through apps here and there and, you know, eavesdropping on conversations and trying to pick up words um, every time I get a chance. But I would love to formally learn Portuguese. Yeah. Oh, it's a beautiful language. I don't, I mean, I don't speak Portuguese, but I speak other romance languages and Portuguese is beautiful. Absolutely love it. Yeah. It's beautiful. Well, is there anything that I haven't asked you about or anything else you wanted to touch on? Um, no, I think, I think we covered quite a lot. Thank you yeah. so much. These questions were really great. I had so much um, fun preparing and looking back at my past, thinking about the answers. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. That was really so interesting. I love hearing about people's stories and language experiences. So thank you for sharing. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you again to Yuna for joining me for this conversation. You can follow Multilingual Montessori on Instagram at multilingual.montessori, and you can find more resources for raising bilingual and multilingual children from a Montessori perspective at multilingualmontessori.org. Please subscribe to the Multilingual Montessori podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you enjoyed this episode, you can leave a five-star rating and review on whatever app you're listening through. It helps more people find the show. If you'd like to join the Patreon community to help keep the podcast running, you'll find the link to that in the episode description. Another wonderful way to support the podcast is to share it with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.